Sean. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. All right, welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick. I'm David. And we are here again with our special guest, Dan Thompson, to talk about one of our favorite animals to talk about. I mean, it circulates through the community like wildfire. It's grizzly bears. And so we brought Dan back in. Dan is with the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, and he is the large carnivore supervisor. So he gets to deal with all the big critters with he gets teeth. to put his hands on them. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Trap, sedate them, do all those wonderful things learn about him so he's got a lot more knowledge than everybody else who's kind of like an armchair quarterback on grizzlies and thinks they know everything about him so we I thought deal with those people yeah <laughs> <laughs> so he also gets to work with folks that you know have livestock predation all kinds of different issues so he's he's the man who has the knowledge so we brought him in here to talk about grizzly bears so dan thanks for coming in yeah thanks for having me guys yeah, so just again, give everybody a recap of your background, how you kind of got into this job, and where you're from. Sure. I grew up in, on a farm in Iowa, actually. A lot of Midwesterners end up in the mountains because we want to be here, I guess. You know, I always had a passion for the outdoors, grew up hunting and fishing and trapping. And at a young age, I kind of wanted to work like as a biologist, working with wildlife, and went to school at South Dakota State. And got a degree in that and then bounced around quite a bit and ended up going back to school and bounced around doing wildlife jobs. It's kind of a nomadic lifestyle, working three months here, six months there, trapping mice or doing veg work. But there, it, it gets you a lot of different places. And so and I went back to school. I worked on turkeys and then I ended up working, doing graduate work on mountain lions, which was something I'd always wanted to do. And... That's kind of what led me here. Uh, I, when I finished that up, I was fortunate enough to get a position in Lander as uh, basically as a lion biologist for the state. But all of us large carnivore biologists do a lot of different things. And <clears throat> I did that for about five years and then put in for the current position as supervisor and sold my soul to do that, I guess. <laughs> no, but it's obviously less less field time, but but we got a great crew and I'm just happy to be part of it. So yeah, that's where I've been in Game and Fish for over 12 years now. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's good to have you on here. Grizzly bears are a very popular topic at the moment. We have yes, they are. a number of encounters and we'll focus in on that a little bit today, but we've had a lot of encounters with folks and grizzlies already. And then not to mention there's also expansion of grizzly bear range that we're starting to find out about. So we'll have you talk about that a little bit, sure. but so let's start with, you know, grizzly bears are a controversial animal because they're big, they're powerful and they kind of have a temper. At least the ones here in Wyoming do. They, they're a little bit reactive. So can you tell us just a little bit about the species itself and, and you know, what people ought to know about them? Sure. You know, yes, you, grizzly bears are more aggressive than black bears. And, and which black bears are kind of ubiquitous throughout Wyoming. And we've seen expansion with black bears too, as we have with grizzly bears, but grizzly bears are still relegated to Northwest Wyoming. Uh, but you know, they kind of, their evolutionary process with most animals is fight or flight. There's not much flight with grizzly bears. It does happen. Uh, but, um, yeah, they are more aggressive and it's because of how they evolved. Um, 
Apex with, dominant predator. Yeah, and dealing with everything around them, and they very actively defend three things, their food, their young if they have them, and their personal space. And so that's what's important for the public to know is that those things, if you, I guess, defy any of those things, uh, you're, you're potentially in a really bad situation with a bear. Where we see most of our injuries or attacks or surprise encounters, we've had two in Wyoming this spring. Basically, it just, and it happens so quick, it's hard to explain how that happens even to the most prepared person. And so that's one thing we really try to instill in people is that you're trying not to surprise a bear and try to stay out of areas that, like during the day when they're sleeping in dark timber, if you don't have to go through some of that country, try not to. And just a general awareness when you're out in the woods that there's that, that potential is there with grizzly bears. So here's another question that I have is, you know, what is the best, you know, grouping or size of group that you should go in if you're going to go into the outdoors? Because a lot of these guys that we see, they're, they're solo. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, traveling in groups helps because it gives more eyes and inherently you're being making noise. And so groups of four or more are, are really suggested if, you're, if you have that ability to do so. I would realize not everybody does. And, and I like being by myself when I'm outside. <laughs> but there's, there's times that it's just if you can, if you can have extra people with you, just, to, just so you have those, that heightened awareness, you can look in both directions at once basically and make some noise. And so, yeah, that, that really does help to have, I think, as much as because you're making more noise with that many people. And it's more intimidating to a bear. If it's a surprise encounter, they might bluff charge, but if there's four to five people, they're less likely to continue that charge than if there's just one person, I guess. Put it that way. So what is the average, you know, size of our grizzly bears here? <laughs> That's a great question. Because we hear how big they are, and they're, our females will run two to 300 pounds, an adult, and those males will get a lot bigger, you know, uh, but they're... But maybe these, six is the top yeah, end, right? Um, We're not looking at 1,000-pound Alaskan no, bears. We don't have the, the coastal Alaskans here that are over 1,000 pounds. Uh, we actually caught and removed a bear that was a repeat offender last summer that was over 700 pounds. Wow. And that's the biggest bear most of us had ever seen. So what was his age? Oh, he was, I think, 12 years old. What's the average age for a, a healthy adult male? Well, I, I don't know I could say average, but, you know, they, they reach, we kind of consider them an adult once they're five years old. That's when they're part of the breeding population. And they'll they'll live to up the upper 20s. Wow. The, they really kind of hit their stride in that once they get eight to 10 years, and then they really, you know, there's a, with the high density of bears that we have, <clears throat> excuse me, in Wyoming, you really see a lot of those interactions among males, and those older males are just, they're almost their whole head and neck is scar tissue. It's pretty impressive, and busted canines from fighting each other and notched ears, and that they they really put a beating on each other as they get, as their territorial, as far as a female goes. So, but yeah, we, I mean, we've caught multiple bears over 20 years old, but then once they get over that 20-year time frame, a lot of things that we see is the, the teeth are get really worn, and they're just, they start to senesce, just like, like, you know, elk or deer. They can only grow those big antlers for so long, and then they start to senesce into older age, and we see that in those, the mid to upper 20s with grizzly bears if they make it that long. Yeah, going back to conflict, what's the most common conflict? Is it 
the boar grizzly or is it the sow? Depends on the type of conflict and the situation. You know, we've seen a shift in Wyoming as bears have expanded. And I know we're going to talk about expansion, but we're seeing a lot more bears in in agricultural and human-dominated landscapes. We've seen a shift over time. We used to have a lot more garbage, property damage, things like that. But basically because of what the public has done to secure attractants and the education that we and other agencies have done, we've seen that shift more toward uh, our primary conflicts nowadays are with livestock depredation as bears have expanded into those areas. And so we spend a lot of time with that now. But we still have, you know, then there's the uh, human injuries. And those are, those are, those are elevated because, you know, you got somebody getting hurt. Mm-hmm. And so with those, uh, we see a lot of situations with females, with young, with those surprise encounters in those types of situations. And, you know, I talked about what they defend. So of those surprise encounters, we see a lot more. We see a, a decent pro- a proportion of those females with young because they're defending young, and likely they're on a food source too. Um, and we do, you know, we generally, on the edge of, as this expansion occurs, the, the first, I guess, wave of bear that you're likely to see are these transient young males. And so... As they expand into new areas, that's usually the type of animals we're dealing with. are younger males, these four- to five-year-old males, three- to five-year-old males. Uh, but once a population is established, it's kind of a, a mix of all. And mm-hmm. we do have those. We have, um, like when we're talking livestock depredation, um, you'll get some opportunistic killing that occurs. And like with females, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes those females with young, depending on the year, they might... They might kill cattle when they have cubs, but then as they're older, they're able to find food differently. But the one thing that, you know, based on our years of expertise and experience that you do see is certain bears figure it out and they just become chronic depredators. And Habituated to, yeah, it's easy to catch a, yeah, a calf I or mean, a sheep. I, that, that's, and that's what they do. And those are the bears that we that we catch and attempt to remove from the population because it's just, uh, they're not for the greater good of bears, maintain them in the lines on the landscape. That's better to remove those chronic repeat offenders. And that's based on actually research done here in Wyoming years ago. So with respect to carrying capacity and population densities, kind of where are we at in the GYE? We're at or above carrying capacity for the habitat that we have in the GYE probably have been for a few years. So Um, we're going to start seeing more of these dispersal, not less of it. Yeah, I mean, unless unless something changes, but we're we're definitely seeing we're seeing bears in areas they haven't been for hundreds of years, which you know we've talked about this before. Ecologically fascinating, but realistically <laughs> kind of terrifying from my from my standpoint. For the bears and for, for the, the people. bears and people, because we don't want we don't want those. I mean, things can get ugly really quick. There's and a joke in Alaska where you know you need to when you're out hiking. You need to wear bells, right, to <laughs> alert the bears. And you need to be able to identify the difference between the black bear scat and the grizzly bear scat. And the difference is, is in the grizzly bear scat is a bunch of little bells. <laughs> and they smell like pepper, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fact. And, you know, go back to what do these, these guys eat? Because I, there, there are a lot of people that are like, oh, grizzly bears just eat meat. 
Yeah, they eat everything. No, their <laughs> their dietary plasticity is the fancy term for it. They're extremely adaptable. They're the epitome of omnivory. They eat all kinds of things. We had to one of the previous delistings and relistings. We had to analyze basically the impacts of changes in food sources for grizzly bears and found out that they, specifically the white yeah pine. the white bark pine uh, was brought up because white bark pine as a as a population of or species of white bark pine was on the decline because of blister rust and the pine beetle and the thing I appreciate about that is you know uh, on the surface uh, the the lawsuit when I followed some of it was hey that this food source is threatened so therefore the bears are going to be threatened and I mean, kudos to you guys. You guys went out and did a scientific method research. Followed somebody followed bears around and sifted yeah. poop, right? <laughs> Figured out what they're eating and, well, and weighed mean, bears. And yeah, and I, there was yeah, because we had to look at so many different things. Excuse me. And because we've been studying the population for decades, we had a lot of data through time that allows us to evaluate changes. And you know, one thing we found is that. That a lot, there's a third of the bears don't even have white bark pine in their home range. So they're not, it doesn't matter to them, obviously. And basically found that bears, freak grizzly bears in the GYE frequently consume 75 different types of foods on an wow. annual basis. And there's, that's incredible. There's general types and times a year that they're eating certain things. But the, at the end of the day, and anybody who's worked with bears yet, I mean, they're, they are the epitome of, of adaptability into, Sometimes we don't get wildlife enough credit. You know, you have generalists and then you have specialists. And the generalist finds food, and that's what we see with grizzly bears. And so, yeah, when we looked at that, <clears throat> the overall, all these different things in relation to the changes in whitebark pine, what we found overall through multiple publications was that any changes in the trajectory of the population, because so the population looked like it was leveling out somewhat, Still growing, but not as much as it was in the 80s, 90s. But any changes were more related to density dependence. You can only fit so much of any type of animal in one area at one time. And so that's what we're seeing, and we have been seeing it for several years now, multiple years. There's something I found kind of similar to that is my father drew a tag in Starkey Experimental Forest in Oregon oh, 15 really? years ago, right? Yeah. And I looked at a lot of the data and research and you know, the year before we hunted it, they doubled the amount of hunters in there. You would think that they'd double the harvest rate. They actually had a about a 5% less harvest rate because there's only so many saddles. There's only so many choke pinch points. There's only so many ambush sites, right? Yeah. So if, as a two-legged hunter, you know, predating on elk, if you put 10 hunters in the same area that's traditionally only been able to harvest five bulls you're not going to see all of a sudden 10 so if you put yeah, 10 grizzly point. bears in the yeah. same drainage you know and next year you dump 20 in there that you're you're going to have problems yeah and it's there's only so much there's only so much carrying capacity for for any of our wildlife and that's all those dynamics are changing the gye is very unique in that we have the intact carnivore guild so the same basically all the same animals that were are here now were here a thousand years ago and but we've seen a lot of changes. Wolves were brought back in. Grizzly bears have expanded, and the prey populations have changed through time. And all these things are, these dynamics are continually changing. And what we're seeing now is more human use of a lot of areas. And this spring, <laughs> <laughs> you know, throw a worldwide pandemic into the mix. And and it's funny. I was just writing something about 
you know, there's been some people looking at, I'm sorry, I'm kind of getting off task here, but people looking at wildlife populations and more in urban, ex-urban areas and, you know, like animals moving into town because people aren't there. But Wyoming from, I mean, I think what we've seen more is more people coming and using the woods and, and escaping their reality of city life or places to get away from their own quarantine issues and pushing into the areas where wildlife are. It's almost like it's the opposite here in Wyoming. But. Yeah, I saw an article, state park usage is way up yeah. here in Wyoming, and it's because people are going nuts, man. They they want to get outside. They want to go play. They want to do something. And, you know, it's no mistake that there were more shed hunters this spring. Oh, there yeah. were more people out on the hills, combing the hills for antlers and just getting outside. And so, of course, you're going to have more conflict because there's plenty of bears, and so that chance for interaction just goes way way up yeah i think there was a huge factor this spring you know in the gye we've had six human injuries with grizzly bears which we might have a couple in the spring and usually more in summer fall when there's more people but there yeah there's a lot more people out in the woods and we have got a lot of bears yeah we had 12 injured with coronavirus and six injured with grizzly bears (laughs) think about that for a second (laughs) i did want to ask you the uh I saw a video recently up from Yellowstone of a grizzly bear taking down a bison. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was interesting to watch because it was definitely a duel of life and death where the bear came out on top. But it wasn't Hollywood quick, clean. No, and, no, 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 no. And that's... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it was horrible to watch for some of the people because, I mean, it's 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 life. It's what's going to happen up there. And people got a dose of what a grizzly bear's power is. I mean, the fact that a grizzly can actually take down a bison is incredible. Sorry, that's my phone. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, it's okay. Yeah, you know, I watched that too. Oh, like I'm sure thousands or millions of people yeah. have watched it at this point, but it shows that was very interesting. And it's not a big bear, not a big bison, but basically that bear learned how to kill that animal during the time they were they were filming it, and we see it. You know, when a, when a bear kills, like we see it with cattle, like calves and things like that, they basically, they, the way they kill them is a bite to the back. Mm-hmm. But if you watch that, you saw the bear started toward the hind end. Mm-hmm. And bison are much, their vertebrae are so different because it's got the, the process in the middle with that extra muscle tissue. So watching it, it, it can't get that bite in the back like it might with, with domestic cattle. And but just the focus of that animal, the grizzly bear, literally walking across the bridge with the with the bison, and then once they got in the water, then it was advantage grizzly bear, obviously. And but yeah, I think it's eye opening for people to see that's that's real life there, you know, in, in the in the outdoor world. <clears throat> and I thought it was kind of fascinating that basically that bear. Went through all that, weaving through cars and people, and didn't seem to care. Then once he got that bison down, then you saw the head pop up and look around like, <laughs> geez, I've been being filmed the whole time, you know? But that just shows that focus they have. And, and yeah, when and there's times that animals get away, of course, but it just shows you the power from that. There's a video that was taken of a, a smaller female grizzly bear taking down a calf that was bigger than her basically this was several years ago in crandall area north northwest cody 
And uh, yeah, it shows it shows how it happens and the, the reality of how those things occur on the ground. So, you know, we we know how powerful these animals are. They're they're huge, and I know people are afraid of them. I know I am. Sure. I, I have a healthy respect for them. So, you know, big news lately has been hey they're they're moving around, they're dispersing, and so I wanted you to just talk about where they're dispersing because a lot of people don't know where Viva Naughton is for one sure. thing and just kind of why they're dispersing out. Sure. sure. And that's, again, it's based on the, the population overall and the high density. It's just a natural, it's kind of concentric from, you know, when they started in the original recovery zone, which was right around Yellowstone. And they, like I mentioned, the males will disperse more so at the beginning or not the beginning, but the males are the first to disperse Females more set up shop next to where their mother was. It's called phylopatry and see it with all carnivores. Well, all more solitary carnivores, but it takes longer for the females to, to continue to move out. And there's a whole nother false notion out there that the reason that we're seeing increased dispersal is because there's no food left in the interior. And that's completely false. And we've already disproven that with data and science, but that's still being used and against delisting. And so it's just a natural phenomenon of dispersal that we see as we get more and more bears in the landscape. We had the one that the Viva Not one you're talking about, which is the furthest south we've documented grizzly bears in recent history. As a picture of one bear looked like a sub adult male, like but not like a little guy, but not a, a big adult boar yet. But that's kinda what I expect to see there. There's a, I don't know that it's even hit the news yet, but we got video of two bears in the South Pass area just yesterday, which is not new. I mean, yeah. we've had bears there before, but, you know, we've seen a lot of expansion on that Absorca front. So from, well, I shouldn't say, I'm not trying to separate between Montana and, and Wyoming, but that whole Absorca front, which wraps around Red Lodge in that country, they're experiencing these expansions that we are too. And, you know, those are, those are the ones that keep you up at night when you have bears moving into basically ag and just an area that there's a lot of potential for trouble. It's going to increase your workload. Well, and that, we conflict. really see that that footprint really increases and the potential, you know, a high density of bears in backcountry areas is a lot different than more bears expanding into farmland and residential areas and things like that. I talked to... I talked to one of our guys in Cody this morning and he had five or six bears within like f within five miles, I think, no, 10 miles of the Cody game and fish office. And that's not in the mountains. So, <laughs> and again, it's like, and we hear that all the time. Well, who are we to tell the bears what's good habitat and what's not, but uh, we've also evolved to the point where we have to kind of identify areas where a bear is got the potential to make it without getting in trouble and thinking of human safety. And so those are the, that's why we have some social and biological characteristics of what good bear habitat is. And we've, I mean, we've expanded well beyond that. The, all the recovery criteria for grizzly bears have been met for multiple years. Now it's just, it's embattled in the courts now. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of frustrations out there depending sure. on how your feelings are with grizzly bears. That's for sure. We and we hear that. Well, quite, uh, as quite an archery often. elk hunter, you know, I've I've mentioned this in the past couple of times. The, the things I'm doing are almost enticing the bears, mm -hmm. right? 
you know, mimicking their, their prey sounds, putting myself in, in that dark North face timber midday, you know, and you know, what, what, what would your suggestion to me as an archery hunt elk hunter be to try and mitigate at least lessen my potential risk? Well, and, and that's something that we talked about earlier. If you can at least hunt with at least a partner, and, and take turns or do whatever to have one person more eyes on a swivel and the other person calling or whatever. But and I, you're already aware of the situation, so you're, you're, you're realizing that you're hunting in grizzly country. A lot of times we have people that, that are somewhat, they're like, yeah, I heard there's bears here. And like, yeah, there's actually a lot of grizzly bears <laughs> here. But I think it's that some, some of those places can be avoided and – you know, those bears are sleeping in that dark timber. And so, like, if you're not actively hunting and you're moving through the woods, that's where we've had several of these happen where it's a guy coming back from a morning hunt or going out through just walking through the dark timber and they surprise a bear that's sleeping. You know, maybe in those situations you make a little more noise or you try to stay to main trails to get to where you're going. Uh, but but having another set of eyes is always really beneficial, I think, in those in those types of things. And, yeah, I mean, we and we've got a ton of information and educational material and we actually hand out or mail out flyers to every person every non-resident elk hunter about safety and things you can do to reduce that risk and you know there's a whole there's that part of it and then there's a whole another segment once you have an animal down because then you know the bears have figured that out and (laughs) thereafter the stuff that we're generally throwing away the highest protein material in there is the is the organs and things like that, that generally most people don't keep. I'm a fan of heart, so I try to keep those. Mm-hmm. And I'm a bad enough shot that I never hit the heart. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, the, that's what the bears are keyed in on is that. And so if you can, when you're processing meat, if you can separate that from the, the, the guts and the, the, the carcass from your quarters, if you have to do it, we talked before, if you can, quick quarter and get them out of there. And then that's where it's really nice to have another person because one person I would suggest is just on sentry if you're processing meat. And then if a bear comes, don't, don't try to beat the bear as far as getting that meat. And that's, that's, and that's tough. But if, if you can put, put it in a, if you have to leave it, you have to put it in a place that you can't hang it. It's got to be really open when you go in the next I, day. I'm still going as far as we'll, we'll move it as far as we have to, mm-hmm. you know, and we'll stay out there. I mean, there's been a couple times it's been midnight or 1 o'clock when we finally sure. hit the main trail and start leaving. But we've moved the meat a couple hundred yards away from the the gut pile. Yep. And we try and hang it somewhere open, you know, where so at least be shaded yep. in the morning. But I want to see those quarters yep. hanging in the tree when I'm a couple hundred yards no, away. No, and that's and – that's, the smartest thing you can do. And like I said, those bears, and we've had, you know, we had a couple bad falls of really aggressive bears, and some of those bears aren't part of the population anymore, which is a good thing because they, they're just they're moving beyond that normal, this is a food source, to an aggressive behavior. But we've seen other bears that would literally stand in the woods and wait till they separated the gut pile from the quarters, and once they left, they'd just go eat the gut pile. And so, but once they claim that gut pile, it's theirs. It's, it's theirs. no longer yours. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Very true. Well, there was that study where they tracked bears that were tracking hunters, basically for that reason. They're yeah. waiting for that opportunistic, op, you know, 
it's like, Ooh, gut pile. Yeah. That's mine, you know? And, and so that just talk a little bit about that and what went into that. And sure. That was just, they were trying. And another, there was a, was more of a public hypothesis that the late elk hunting or elk reduction program in Teton park was bringing a bunch of bears in. That was the impetus for the study. Quite honestly, just more to, to try to answer that question. Cause it's a lot later. And what they found is that it's not bringing bears in, it's the bears that are there, just more active and searching out those gut piles as we see. And but they're yeah, opportunistic. They, yeah. They're going to utilize easy food source. And that's, and that's, there's a, there's thousands of, thousands of pounds of, of that food source in the fall for bears. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're, that's when they're hyperphagic, they're eating whatever they can to gain weight. And like I said, all those organs that we leave, that's the stuff that packs on the pounds. And so they, they've, that's part of their. Didn't you guys do, do some sort of research or study and, and show that these bears here are slightly more carnivorous than. Yeah, there, there is a higher meat diet in the GYE population than other uh, brown bear populations in North America. Is that just because that's an easier food source that they I, have or? Yeah. And I think it's because of where they evolved here on the prairie and in the mountains as that, as a food source. And I think there's also, as you get further north with the bear population, there's a lot more vegetative component, a lot more berries and a lot more things like that to eat. You know, if you look at, you look at the black bears in Eastern U.S. that are bigger than our grizzly bears here, but because they have all that, that masting, they have acorns, they have berries and things like that, that they can feast on. I think there's just, that's not as prevalent here in the GYE. So that meat part came a higher portion of their diet here. Yeah. And the brown bears up in Alaska are just eating up all those salmon and yeah, getting and humongous. Salmon, and yeah. they have all that grass to eat too. I mean, yeah. I think there's like a, crazy. The, I think that's the, the bigger, the, the environment is more conducive to that vegetative component that you see more. Oh, the salmon berries in Alaska on some of those bushes. I mean, there, there's bushels of, yeah, of berries yeah. available for and them. And I mean, you look at that in the in Northwest U.S. I mean, those black bears are just feasting on all those berries, and they get to the point. If you've hunted them, I don't know if you have, but like their fat is purple, is purple, yeah, from blackberries, I mean, yeah, from yes. the blackberries. And so, I think that's just. I think it's more of a function of, and we have berries here, and. And they definitely key in on them. The bears do, but mm-hmm. I, I just think there's a higher density of some of those vegetative components in these in other areas with bear, with grizzly bears. I know up around Lander that late in the season you've got you know raspberries and different things up there that are wild, and there's plenty of bear scat. So I know the bears are in there coming through there, sure. eating whatever they can get their mouth on. Choke cherries is a big one, especially mm-hmm. for black bears. Sometimes it's a disadvantage because if if there's not good food on the mountain, there's usually still good choke cherries down below. And every three to five years, we have one of those bad black bear. Well, not bad, but black bear years where they kind of show up and, and we have to deal with some of those things. Yeah. I was hunting around Battle Mountain down, you know, around bags. And I remember I was bow hunting. You'd be proud of me. This was a long time ago. <laughs> but anyway, there was a deer that I was trying to get to and there was a big berry patch and had a real close encounter with a small, very small black bear, you know, sub-adult male or female I don't know he's small but anyway it gets your attention and <laughs> they definitely key in on those things because I mean it was just berries yeah. he was in there eating doing his thing and didn't have any clue that I was there because I was trying to be quiet well and that was <clears throat> that you mentioned that earlier I think it's important to understand those to read sign and to to know what bear scat is 
and it shows you what they're eating. And so there's a reason to avoid some of those berry patches if you can. Certain times of year when that's ripe, because you know there's going to be a bear in there. Black bear, because more, I mean, black bears are more keen on the on the berries, but, but grizzly bears eat them too. That scat's going to tell you where the bear was and where it's eaten. And you can use that <laughs> to your advantage, quite honestly. How quickly can a grizzly bear clean up, you know, the remnants of a carcass that a hunter leaves? You know, the gut pile and, and such. Like the main gut pile, the... A bigger male can clean them up pretty quickly. I mean, the main organs within a day, probably. And it depends on what's left on the carcass, of course. And then if you have a family group on a carcass, they can clean it up really quickly. I mean, we see it like with mountain lions, too. If they make a kill, they can clean it up in a couple of days if it's older kittens. So, and they're, <clears throat> like I said, when they're hyperphagic, they're eating everything. So they can, they can clean them up pretty quick in a couple of days. Yeah, you talked about listing, and that's a that's a big topic. Is why are they still listed? And just you know, if you can kind of help everybody understand why that is, and kind of what goes into that, because we talked about it with wolves, and I encourage everybody to go back listen to the wolf and the mountain lion episodes. Those are episodes eight and nine. You can find them at ragcastoutdoors.com. But the thing that is interesting to me is, you know, they're not on the same level as wolves. Wolves are extremely polarizing you've got the the wolf loving person i guess you could say that just thinks they do nothing bad or you know they just glorify them and then you have people who hate them so grizzly bears are a little different category they're not quite to the same level of you know people getting all frantic but speak for the level of hate i'm not scared of wolves in the woods (laughs) i'm scared of grizzly bears no but what i mean is you know Wolves are worshipped. Oh yeah, I mean that's a whole different level. But with grizzly bears, there there's definitely some of that too. And we've been at the right place for population for quite a long time. Yeah. And so, if you can kind of just talk about that and what kind of goes into that right now. Yeah, and I, I think one of the big differences between wolves and grizzly bears, biologically speaking, is wolves are much more prolific. You know, they can have nine pups in a year. And mm-hmm. Once they're established, it's pretty hard to get rid of them. But grizzly bears are much, much slower as far as reproduction. They they don't start reproducing until four or five years old. And then they, different than black bears, they spend another year with their offspring. And so it is a, it's a slower march, like I said, than it is with, with other animals. But, but they're still, they're very fecund. It's just a little slower. And so I think people realize that. And with with the grizzly bears, as far as delisting, I don't remember the initial question now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but oh, and, and how people think about those things. I think there's a, it's difficult as far as we've biologically recovered them based on the recovery criteria that have evolved through time with the population. But there's a lot of segments out there that have different notions of what recovery is. And, and there's quite honestly, you can, you can find sympathetic judges to your cause. And the, the ESA is one of the most powerful things ever enacted by Congress. Mm-hmm. And it was done in the seventies and it hasn't been revised since. And it does a great job at what it's supposed to do. And grizzly bears are the, they should be the emblematic symbol of how the ESA works, except the goal of that is to delist and move forward. And there's still protections in place 
when an animal's delisted, we still have but protections we, in we place. We should for celebrate wolves. when we reach those those repopulation yeah. parameters, right? Mm-hmm. That goalpost, that goal line's been met. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, we get this renegotiation and jockeying, political, whatever, and yeah. all of a sudden, oh, we're going to double the goalposts. Like, wait a second. Like you've you've hinted at, we've had this dispersion. We, we've kind of reached saturation as far as their suitable habitat. Yep. I mean, they're not going to, grizzly bears are not going to fare well in downtown San Francisco. They're not no. going to fare well in downtown New York. And they're not going to fare well even in downtown Jackson. No. Well, and not only that, you're going to have infanticide. You're going to you're gonna have these bigger bears, these boars, are going to start killing their own because you can only handle so much, right? And we've in one seen area. that, yeah. And yeah, it's just, it's it's tough being on the ground and yeah i mean we should all be celebrating what's happened with grizzly bears and realizing that there's a lot of impacts to people too depending on what their livelihood is but it should be a success story and now it's kind of uses a bludgeon against against delisting anything and that that's unfortunate to me is as a scientist and somebody who's believe strongly in science and that that we have demonstrated that we can recover this population but we can't move beyond that and and it shouldn't just be there's people that don't want them hunted but that's the goal is to delist the animal and it should be Mm -hmm. and we've met that and we've delisted them twice and then lost in court and you know why worry about tipping points for people that live, work, and recreate in grizzly bear country. I I think this summer could be very interesting to see how things play out. Quite honestly, last summer we had a, or last year when the bears were active, we had lower conflicts. We didn't have any human injuries, which was great, but we've already had a couple this year and And people are already frustrated, (laughs) frustrated with their lives. And yeah, the year, two years ago, we had a fatality and, and I'm not trying to, it's tough because People say that we, we as an agency, try to highlight those things to put a bad spin on bears, but that's not what we're doing. That's just the reality of it. I think they're an amazing animal. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't, obviously. But, but there's a reality of it, too. And I don't want – I mean, people and bears can cohabitate in the landscape, but there's, there's got to be sacrifices on all sides, too. And, yeah. you know, we're past this no bear left behind phase and – where we can't we can't protect every bear and there's just yeah there's a there's a lot of different notions out there and quite honestly it's turned into a money-making scheme for for people against delisting and that's unfortunate yeah Yeah, i think that's a whole nother episode yeah honestly it is yeah it is but i i want you to kind of highlight where were we in the 70s and where are we now with regards to population sure when when bears were first listed of course the the main reason the, that there's a lot of issues is because at that time they're in the core of the system and they, they weren't just in Yellowstone. They were outside of course in our wilderness areas and sunlight basin country like that. But uh, they shut down the feeding of the bears, which was created a lot of these food condition bears, which we don't tolerate now back then they were. But once they got rid of that, they had a bunch of bears that were conditioned that had to be put down because they were dangerous and they were, you know, the ability to kill people is a reality with grizzly bears. And so at one point the population was thought to be as low as 136 individuals. And, and that was, I mean, everything that was being done in those early eighties was to save every bear. 
and rightly so because something bad could happen and they're gone. We don't want that. And they're not gone. That's something to to it'd be a local extirpation, but it's not extinction because we have thank you brown for bears. That. Yeah, brown bears across All the world. Over. Yep. And so the North the American people, continent has something like thirty four thousand thousands. Yes. And then you've all, you've still got them in Europe. You've mm-hmm. still got them uh, all throughout Asia. And so I, I, that people people use that and it really bugs me. <laughs> people <laughs> use extinction incorrectly. And anyway, that's another whole other story. But localized uh, lo- extirpation. Extirpation. Yep. Extirpation. That's that's but that's never happened. We were able because there's enough. I because mean, of the, the cons- power of the ESA. Yeah, and the concerted efforts of multiple agencies and the public and everyone mm-hmm. to to bring this animal back. And so to the point where we are we are now, which is we've demonstrated this population showing carrying capacity impacts and density dependence. We, we're working to, re- we do have a conservatively biased estimate, which really ticks a lot of people off, myself included. We're trying to get that better. And so last year's estimate was 737 bears in the area that we count them. And we know there's more than that just based on the techniques we're using. It was, when it was developed, it was a lower density of bears. So 183 in the 70s and a low 700 today. Well, more than that, yeah. 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 I mean, at, at the, the... At the bare minimum. At the bare minimum, yeah, of... That was a good pun. <laughs> the bear minimum. Uh, <laughs> We're getting punny on here today. But, but yeah, I mean, everything points to a fully recovered population, and the things that are maintaining them listed are more nitpicky things within the ESA or things that weren't done right in the delisting rule and things like that. So where do you see this going? I mean, do we see delisting in the next five years potentially? I <laughs> I don't want anything said out loud about that. <laughs> um, I mean, I sure hope, I would hope we could demonstrate and move it forward. At some point, I worry about the constant litigation and that it's going to destroy the Endangered Species Act. I think some so of these with, groups that with use that. With the scientific that, method, I mean, hypothetically, if they were delisted, we could still see a population increase, correct? Sure, sure absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, and that's something that 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 was consistently said with grizzly bears, and is still is said with wolves, is protections have been stripped, which is false. We still have to demonstrate that the population's recovered, and there's multiple criteria that we have to demonstrate every year. And that's and the thing people just, gloss over, and, yeah. especially with the wolves, is you know, since we've had the couple hunting seasons, the population is still increasing or maintaining. We yeah. haven't seen, you know, a fifty percent removal. And that's what the what one side is saying. Well, the second they get delisted, they're gonna cut the numbers in half. And that's just not the truth. Well, there's a lot of fabrications, unfortunately, that gain their own life. Social media really Depends helps the, that. <laughs> are you guys yeah. transporting grizzly bears with black helicopters onto ranches? No. Are you sure? <laughs> we're not taking bears to the bighorns, and we're not moving bears into new areas. We hear that a lot, but no, we you know we've we've worked hard to to get to this place, but we got to that place years ago, and we'd like to be able to move forward and and again focus on the success of, of where we're at with grizzly bears and and realize that we still will always be very busy with conflict mitigation. That's part of the, that's the only way to keep bears and people on the landscape together, quite honestly. Sure. And, and 
There's nothing against the Fish and Wildlife Service. I don't have a problem with them, but it, I think it's better managed by our state because, I mean, it's our state. And, yeah. I mean, you guys are you're, you're on the front line of dealing with conflict issues and, and things like that. And so I think it's better for the bears and for the state and the people in the state that the game and fish is doing, you know, the management piece. Yeah. A lot it's a, more. And it's a cooperative effort, right? It's I mean, gotta be service bad to have to it flip, too. Yeah. To have yeah. it flip back and forth, you know, who's in yeah. charge and let's, yeah. let's have one plan. Let's move forward and let's, yep. you know, be just like with any other deer, elk, salmon, trout, whatever, mm-hmm. let's have a management plan. Let's set some goals, some long-term goals. Yeah. Not every mm-hmm. other year we're going to flip back and forth who has, you know, who has jurisdiction and that, and that gets tough and, and if you look, our management plan, the other states' management plans, the overarching conservation strategy for GY grizzly bears, they all have the same things in them. Yep. You know, there's there's more detail uh, as to on-the-ground management in the state plans on certain things and how they're, how things will be dealt with. But at the end of the day, we're all still held to the same recovery criteria to make sure we're going to keep bears in the landscape but also be able to manage the population. And yep. There's, you know, that that was one thing that was brought up when they were delisted this last time that they wanted us to, to have new objectives depending on what the population level is. And there was this notion that we could, we could remove, we kill 500 bears if we get a new estimate and bring the population down. And it's impossible. We can't do that based on the current recovery criteria, but that gained a life of its own. Well, I do know, you know, talking to some other sportsmen, this last relisting, quote-unquote, you know, aggravated and angered a lot of sportsmen who have been bearing the brunt of these grizzly bear encounters for a while now. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. And, I I mean, I worry about the long-term ramifications of that. You know, I think being able to get them delisted, have that little bit of a celebratory moment and say, hey, we this worked, and then move forward with a – with a more cohesive management plan would benefit the bears in the long term. Yeah, I agree. And uh, of course we had a hunting season in place and I was, (laughs) so I was like the guy who got to call people who wanted to, that that got a tag and like you just won the lottery, but I was also the same guy that had to call him back later and say, "Uh, never mind. But I mean, we were very upfront going into that, that there's a high likelihood that litigation is going to occur. And that's what happened. There was an injunction that stopped the hunt. And then overall, the, they were relisted. But uh, and I still talk to a lot of those people that had those those tags. And, yeah, that was we did a lot of work to, to move forward. And it was still it was a conservative harvest that would maintain the population. Recovery. Based on science. Yeah. And, and based on the fact that the last thing we want to do is to do something that's going to upset or go beyond those constraints that we have. And, you know, that's something that, that is lost a lot of times is we went around the state, went on tour, and basically just said, tell us what you want, which was is very nerve-wracking for the person saying that because <laughs> knowing the different thought processes that people have. But I, I, felt, I felt that was very – that process was really – informative and that it gave the public like knowing that we still are going to do based on you know our profession what we feel is right but this is your chance to to put provide input into the future of grizzly bear management for the state of wyoming 
And it wasn't just hunting. That was one component of it. But the people got a chance to voice their opinions. And all the different communities and all the different stakeholders involved had a say. And including the people that are against it, they had a say in that. And that was incorporated into our hunting regulations, all sides of the factor to, to try to move forward. And But it was still stopped. And, and again, then they were... Unfortunately, that was used as the reason bears shouldn't be delisted as hunting, and those should have been separated, but but that's that's just how it happened. I well, think it's important yeah. to just highlight real quick, you know, because I followed very closely, and I was somebody who signed up to help conservation and paid to be one of those hunters. But you know, with the way you guys had it set up, it was a very limited harvest, right? Mm-hmm. And that same year, with damaged problem bears, we removed more than that harvest was ever going to be. Oh, sure, yeah. And so, it. I mean, it's just important to, to highlight that it's a tool. It's not, you know, all-encompassing, we're going to remove all the bears. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of constraints on what type of harvest levels, and we're never going to do anything to push past those constraints, obviously. It was just something, it's one component of the overall conservation yeah. management of grizzly bears, but some people can't get past that component. Yeah, you mentioned that with the wolves when they were, you know, listing, you're yeah. still removing them. I mean, it's it's not like they're, you know, w- we still have to manage the population for mm-hmm. what we need, right? And so you guys are just trying to do your job. And it's nice to be able to have sportsmen help with that conservation sure. and get, I think it's important also to have the sportsmen be bought in. Because right now, all of us are thinking, oh, crap, I'm going to get attacked by a grizzly bear when I go elk hunting. You know, instead of just having that, having it, Hey, I'm maybe I can it. draw a tag and be part of the conservation yep. of this majestic animal. That's a whole different ball game. And I think you win more people over with that. But unfortunately, it's so polarized on it. Uh, yeah, it, it very tough. much is. I just actually got, <clears throat> excuse me, the final comments from our wolf hunting, which we'll take to the commission, our proposals in July. And yeah, the uh, there's a whole faction of it that's just, People against the hunting of wolves, period. That's fine. but And we'll address that at the commission, but it's just that there's there's this whole segment that are adamantly opposed to to that, to any hunting of these animals, these particular animals. And that's, I blame that's okay. Hollywood in, in part because, you know, there's this stigma of, I've heard some people say it, I would rather have a game and fish officer come out and remove 100 wolves than have a sportsman remove one wolf. There's there's something there's a there's a component that was, there that bothers people. Yeah, and the main, I might have said that in an earlier podcast. I was told me about the year that over 100 wolves were removed uh, through agency removal when they were relisted. Re, yeah, relisted. Over 100 wolves were killed for from conflict and damage management. And I had an individual tell me I'd rather that than any wolves be killed by sportsmen, and that just I, that doesn't make sense to me. No, I think that comes back to the root of just not liking sportsmen in general. And I'm some sportsmen, they bring that on themselves. They do some stupid things, but most of us are doing the right thing in the field. And most of us are actually really good folks, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of funny how we get this stigma. That's what they sportsmen. say. They say that a lot about game and fish people. Like once they get to know us, like, <laughs> you're not as big of an a-hole as I thought, you were, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's true. I, I wish I wish there could be more just realizing that there's so much stereotyping and that's a bad part of, of our society, I guess. But but 
yes, the realization that that the connection that sportsmen have with wildlife is is critical and very important, and it's something that that we've used to get to the point where we're at today with all wildlife. We're seeing expansion of large carnivores throughout North America. We're seeing we're now we've, yes, we're seeing reductions in mule deer throughout the West and some of our moose populations, but by and large, most of our ungulate populations are, are doing well or increasing. And I mean, you look at black bears in the East, they're doing, they're doing amazing. We're seeing Florida Panthers are even doing better now, you know? And mm-hmm. so if we could focus more on that, then the, the constant bashing back and forth of this or that, I, I wish we could do more of that. I think that extends all the way to all politics in our nation is if we could just sit down and have a civil discord, yeah. right? Have a conversation and, we, we could probably reach some sort of amicable agreement. Not everybody's going to get everything they want. Exactly. But the wildlife are going to win in, in the out. Yeah. I, I've been into some very, some very unique situations. I mean, obviously when we had the grizzly bear hunting discussion in Jackson, Wyoming, you expected it to be <laughs> highly contentious and a lot of people. But quite honestly, there was a ton of people with very differing viewpoints, but everybody sat down. There's a couple of people that walked out because they didn't, re- they, we split people into groups. And once they realized there wasn't a way for them to get up and beat their chest <laughs> that they left. And we had several people do that, but by and large, most people stayed and had civil discussions back and forth. And you're right. I mean, we can, we can do that. Uh, we hear from people that, that aren't the, aren't hunters or fishermen that, that, Say, I don't have a say in how things are managed, and that's false. We have a public right. comment process. We do, we do take those things into consideration, but there's this notion that if we don't do exactly what you do, what, what the person asked for, that we're not listening. That's not true. You can't do everything, but we can listen and realize that's a component and try to incorporate certain things into our regulations that take into account all the different comments that we hear, and that is, that is something we do. Well, I would certainly appreciate, you know, if we can get this, these next couple steps done, you know, on, on the side of a horseman and a backcountry bow hunter, you know, just taking my kids horseback up to a lake day fishing, right? Yeah. Having a grizzly bear encounter with young kids on a horse is not something you want. No. And if we could remove some of those more visible bears from the population, the bears that are a little more accustomed to you know, checking out a, a hunter's camp or, or really cruising, you know, I'm not saying all of them, I'm sure. not saying, but I'm just saying if, if over the next 10 years, we could remove a couple individuals that are a little more less human, you know, aware, I think long term that would have some, some lasting impacts on recreating up in the GYE. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think, that, well, I know for me, and we talked about this before, but I mean, it is a, it is a factor when I decide where I'm going to hunt. I mean, my my experience on Spread Creek will stick with me the rest of my life, being that close to a boar grizzly. And I, I mean, I, there are a lot of people in this community that tell a similar story. Oh yeah, you absolutely. Know? And so, I I just want to see a win for the people of Wyoming, the grizzly bear in the game and fish department, where we have the opportunity to manage these animals and 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 do a good job of it. Cause guess what? The game and fish does a great job of managing the animals in this state. That's why we get so many people that apply to hunt here. Yeah. It's like, there's they no do. mistake. No, there's no, there's no people mistake. Fish that here, fishing game here. is doing a great job and we have great opportunities. Yeah. 
I just want to highlight for me, I feel like every time I'm spinning the chamber on the revolver, when I go up there, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, and I, and we hear that a lot. There's yeah. people that don't hunt Dubois country anymore because of grizzly bears. Yeah, that's me. And well, and it's on, and now as bears have expanded, there's, there's frustrations and that we, well, obviously we hear. And but you guys that's are basically though, handcuffed in a in a boxing match right now. Yeah, yeah and that and that's the irony of it is that there's constant litigation and things being decided and people arguing that that these bears aren't recovered until they reach their historic levels. And meanwhile, we've got bears. We're getting calls too about there's a bear in my front yard. Mm-hmm. Get it out of here in you downtown know? Cody. Well, in, yeah, and they're pushing the boundaries of Riverton. Yeah, right? they're not yeah. here today, but they will be. Well, yeah, we've had a couple bears within a mile of Cody this spring. We we've had the bear that was behind Dairy Queen, and yeah, it's just the irony is that we deal with all sides of it, mm-hmm. and some people from far away can. I get it. There, there's people passionate about grizzly bears. I am too. Well, we have uh, people from all over the world come check out Yellowstone and the GYE, and mm-hmm. they all want to take a picture of a grizzly. Oh, yeah. And that, we hear that roundly. And I, they, yes, that's great. But we should also be able to move forward and say, yeah, we are recovered. Yes. Yep. And I and I hope we get to that point within the next few years. Of course, it's out of our hands. Yeah. Uh, we have to let the courts do their thing. But I really hope to see something where everybody's on the same page and they're managed by the state, which is where it should be. And, you know, people have those opportunities to go take the pictures, you know, and do that. They always I, I enjoy those pictures, you know, sure. the, what's that bear that's popular with the four cubs at three ninety nine, and yeah. she's all over the place, you know, with pictures of her and her cubs. And I think that's great. Sure. But I also, you know, it's like, yeah, let's, let's get to managing this on our own. I think we, Wyoming is pretty good at this. Yeah. And I, I, one thing I'll bring up, sorry, I mean to interrupt. No, um, you're good. Uh, I think there's there's a notion that you can't you can't photograph pictures or f- photograph bears and hunt bears like they're mutually exclusive or you can't photograph a false dichotomy. Of, well, yeah, the, you yeah. can't photograph them and also delist and manage them, which is false. You know, we're that's always going to be a component and they're always going to be visible. And it's funny because from the work that that our agency and all the other agencies and the public have done to recover the animals we've created a tourism industry for for wolf see like wolf eco tours you, and grizzly touched. bears and and but yet we're the bad guys <laughs> because we also we're we're left holding the bag of crap yeah. when we have to manage things so it's just it's very interesting yeah you've touched on something very unique there that you know people don't quite understand that as a sportsman as an advocate for wildlife Right, but also someone who consumes wildlife. Some of my favorite pictures are me and my buddies up hiking, and there's a spike elk in the background walked out the meadow, right? Yeah, yeah. And I would argue and say that, you know, as a sportsman, I have a deeper, more intimate connection with the wildlife that are on the landscape intact than anybody with any huge telephoto lens driving around yeah. in a car ever will, right? Because if you spent all day hiking up a trail to get to a high basin to catch trout and all of a sudden you catch a moose, you know, at the bottom end of yeah. the, in the willows. And you just take a moment to enjoy the serenity of here's this moose and here's the wind and I'm going to catch trout versus the person that drives around in the car taking the, yeah. and, uh, ph- photography is great. Sure. But here, here's my next question. As a duck hunter, 
I buy a wetland conservation stamp every year to go hunt yeah. waterfowl, right? Yeah. There's plenty of people that go to these, you know, wa- res- restored wetlands with their telephoto lens and take a picture of birds. Have they bought their conservation stamp that paid for those wetland sure. restaurants? Yeah. And the answer is usually no. Usually no, yeah. And that, yeah, the duck stamp there is a great example of we had duck waterfowl populations in peril, and all that was because of market hunting, but... That was realized, and the duck stamp brought back. I, I'm a Midwest kid, so that's what mm-hmm. I grew up doing was hunting ducks, you know. <laughs> but, then, but, yeah, I mean, that, that, that puts those people, yourself, as part of the reason we have these, these animals the way they are. And I think I talked about this. You, you touched on something there, the, the connection that, that people who are sportsmen, sportswomen, have to the, to the area that they're hunting or they're – to the connection to the land and the wildlife that is missed by a lot of people. And yeah, I think I talked about this on a previous podcast, how nobody likes to go hiking with me because I spend all mm-hmm. my time looking at it. And I noticed it was my son, which makes me happy because he, he and I are both bumbling around like, Oh, there's a bug, you know? <laughs> and, but, but you, it's all these things that, that are just the, the end result of an elk hunt is one thing, but there's everything in between. Oh yeah. You know, I snuck out, I don't hunt till really late because we're busy in the fall. So I do some more like winter late cow tag hunts, but I snuck away a couple, couple years ago, just up above Lander and looking for, looking for an elk. And I ran into a pine Martin that was watching me. I spent an hour taking pictures of this pine Martin, you know, interaction back and forth. And there's so much of that that's, that's missed. I think by people who don't understand that segment of, of people that that's how they interact with wildlife. Sure. I call them consumptive versus non-consumptive recreators. Sure. Right? But for for the non-consumptive group, you know, it, it would behoove them to go look at the story of, you know, the North American whitetail, the turkey, yeah. you know, the Rocky Mountain elk. Go look at their recovery story and how sportsmen, consumptive sportsmen played a vital key role in, in that success story. Sure. And I'd argue that all people are consumptive. You know, if you're it's just and from how, a different standpoint, yeah. If 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 you're unless you're not breathing oxygen, <laughs> oh, you're, you're a consumer. Yes. Yeah, and then those those people there mm-hmm. there's an impact from a quote non-consumptive user on wildlife for sure, and so <clears throat> and that's another dichotomy that that is used by certain groups against each other. But but yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. So if people want to get to know more about grizzly bears more in depth than what we went into here, what are some of the resources that you guys provide? Oh yeah. um, Check out our website. We've got, we've got a ton of information in our Bearwise Wyoming page. It's called. Okay. If you go on the game and fish website, just Google Bearwise Wyoming. We'll put it in the show notes too. Yeah. Perfect. And uh, very interactive. There's a bunch of videos. There's, there's things you can print out. There's, recreating and camping in grizzly bear country, hunting in grizzly bear country, hiking in grizzly bear country. And so there's a ton of information out there. Awesome. Well, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on with us and talk about these bears. They're incredible animals and I'm excited to see hopefully what happens in the future. Hopefully we can get back to Wyoming. Hopefully we can do a podcast in the future about management. And Dan, I I appreciate you, you know, applying the scientific method to your job and really, you know, presenting the facts as the best you can, you know, go out and recover them and, and giving us this data that we, you know, then can make decisions with. I appreciate that.
And again, everybody, if you like this podcast, please go like, share, rate, and go to our website, radcastoutdoors.com. Like I said, I'll put some info in the in the show notes for people so that you guys can get some more resources because one of our big goals between David and I is that you can get your family out there and be safe. And that's, that's a big deal. And when you're in bear country, you need to pay attention. You need to know what's going on. So we'll definitely put that out there. And again, do what you can out there, be safe, be bear aware, especially if you're out in this area of (laughs) area of the country. And Dan, again, just thank you so much for being on. Oh, thanks guys. Always fun. In the meantime, the weather's great. Get outside and, uh, Go, go do something. Right? Enjoy it.